All right, everyone, go ahead and find your way back to a seat. Hustle, back to your seat. Good morning. Hey, while you guys are walking back to your seat, hello to everyone who's watching online. Uh, whether you are out and about traveling uh, or you're at home, so excited that you are gathering with us. Thank you to everyone who's watching at home or on the road or on your travels. So excited that you are gathering with us to worship and open the text. Hello, Anthem Camarillo. I miss you guys. And I don't know a bunch of you guys. This has been a strange, strange year. For those who don't know me, my name is Bert, um, and Sherry and I help lead Anthem Ventura Church. We got to help plant about five years ago with a then one-year-old son, Calvin. We now have three kids, Calvin, Truman, and Emerson, and they are doing something crazy to your teachers back in the back. So I'm so thankful we get to be uh, here with you today. As a family of churches, we are in the book of John together. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and take it out. Open up to the book of John chapter 5. And once you open up there, go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read our teaching text for today, and then I'll pray over our time. So go ahead and stand, and we're going to start in John 5. I'm going to borrow the verse from last week to start, verse 18, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I could do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved." He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, 
bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Do not think that I will accurse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus, as we open up the scriptures this morning, we also open up our hearts to you. Open up our minds to you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us decipher the truth here in scripture and also see where we are missing it. This is a maybe a painful text for some to read because it reveals the hypocrisy of empty religion. And it exposes where those who should have known better have missed you. And so in all humility, Holy Spirit, we we just ask, where have we missed Jesus? Even now, as we take some time to work through these verses, would you reveal in our hearts where we have put other things in front of you, where we have missed you, where we have done maybe the right thing for the wrong reasons. Jesus, would you encourage, would you console, would you convict, would you bring to repentance, and ultimately would you glorify yourself this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Thanks, guys. These are some long texts in John, but as we as a teaching team were kind of preparing this series, we felt pained to break some of these up because that long 30-some-odd verses that I read was all one kind of moment from Jesus. It was actually a response to the Pharisees who were critical of what Jesus was doing. And so we worked through these long passages seeking the truth that is in here. Now, put yourself for a moment in the shoes of the religious elite of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, those who would have known the scriptures inside and out. You were the ones who were supposed to have it all together. Not only did you create some of the rules, you follow all the rules to the T. If you have it all together from a religious perspective, what is essential to know about Jesus? What are the fundamentals? What is essential to know about the Messiah, this long-awaited, long-foretold Messiah that that would come and bring redemption? What is the most important thing? to know about him. You know, this whole biography of John is written so that you may believe. He says that in the John chapter 20. And often, immediately, we think that those out there would believe, right? That like my unbelieving friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, and yes, that is absolutely true. This is an incredibly evangelistic biography of Jesus, by all means. But this is one of those moments And this interaction between Jesus and the religious elite 
the leaders, the ones who are supposed to have it all together, the ones who are the most in the know with God, the Bible scholars, the professors, the pastors of their day. This is this moment where that so you may believe would apply to insiders as well as outsiders. Not just the woman at the well, but the one in the middle of the temple courtyard. This is for us. I just taught through John chapter 4 a couple weeks ago for our church. The woman at the well says, beautifully evangelistic grace and mercy of Jesus on display. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And we can get on board with that one. It's a little tougher, if we're being honest, to get on board with this one where we are forced to look inward. Not, not the one who has missed it out there, is worshiping the wrong things, has had the five, six different husbands, but us. The ones who know our scripture the ones who are here every Sunday or watching online every Sunday, who are in that community group, who are giving generously, it is a moment for us to look inward and go, in all of our good things, have we missed God? And this was the setup with Jesus and the Pharisees. Remember, just in earlier chapter 5, he had just healed a guy at the pool, but he did it the wrong way. He did it on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are up in arms because not only is he breaking the Sabbath rule, but he's claiming equality with God. And they want to kill Jesus for this. And so this even might be one of those last words moments. They want to go after him. They want to kill him. So what are the most important things to communicate to this group of religious leaders, those who are most in the know? And if you've got something important to say, if you need to defend yourself to try and communicate the most important thing about you, what do you say if you're Jesus? But Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Which is not only a vitally important thing to understand, but these are fighting words with the Pharisees. Not only do they not get him out of trouble, they get him into deeper trouble. He's like, oh, you didn't like that thing I said? Let me expound on that for another five or ten minutes. And just deepen that wound. This is a beautiful text about Jesus claiming equality with God and builds for us a robust Christology and helps our understanding of the Trinity. But these are also inflammatory words in Jesus' time and place. And what we see in this text primarily is that believing that claim of Jesus, that he is equal with God, that he is in union with the Father, they're inseparable, he's only doing the will of the Father, believing that claim means three things for us, especially today. One, to reject Jesus is to reject God. And I'll even go a step further, to reject the way of Jesus is to reject God. Two, Scripture apart from Jesus is lifeless. And three, we have we don't need to seek the approval of others because we have been approved by the only one whose approval matters. So the first one to reject Jesus is to reject God. Jesus was claiming to be the son of God, not the son of God like we talk about like we're all sons and daughters of of God. That's that's good, but this is different. He's claiming to be the son of God, in union, in sync and equal to God in nature and in every way. Which gets right to the main contention that the religious leaders have. We see in verse 18, not only was he healing the wrong way, sort of missing the forest for the trees moment, but he was claiming equality 
with God. And he doesn't shy away from that, but he leans into that provocative statement. He claimed that the Father's works are his own, including raising the dead, which he's going to show off in chapter 11, even as a prelude to his own resurrection, that he has the power to raise the dead to life. And the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus because of that claim. Now, their response is wrong. Do we agree? Not a good response. You encounter Jesus, the Messiah. He says, I'm equal with God. We say, we want to kill you. We're all on board. That's a bad thing, right? <laughs> it's a little quiet. I don't know. All right. We agree it's a bad thing. I'll take your silence as complicity here. But their understanding of what Jesus was saying was not that wrong. They knew what he was saying, even if they didn't buy into it. They knew the weight and the gravity of those claims. Part of the reason they're so up in arms is because Jesus is posing the sort of ultimatum. If you reject me, you're rejecting Yahweh. You're rejecting God. You're rejecting the scriptures you've built your life on. Even a step further, to reject Jesus and his way. Healing on the Sabbath was to reject God. And they thought they were in with God. They studied the scriptures. They followed the rules. And Jesus is telling them, you've missed it entirely. Might I pose that our common problem is quite similar to the Pharisees? Not in so much as we want to kill Jesus, but in so much we don't actually buy in. We don't actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, you're in this room, so to some degree or another, you do intellectually, theologically. But when Jesus said he's God, do you believe him in a way that actually changes your life? The question, this question is at the root of John's entire gospel that we see in John chapter 20. And if we believe Jesus' claim on who he is, that must mean something for how we live. You can say yes to Jesus, but does your life say yes to Jesus? Have we said yes to Jesus with our lips, but reject him in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, in our behaviors, by how we live, by how we treat other people, how we treat our enemies? How we handle our money, or our kids, or our calendars, or our legacy, our downtime, our busy time. Living in this sort of cognitive dissonance warrants a rebuke from Jesus. And as if on trial, Jesus goes to back up his claim with some proof, and some evidence, and some witnesses, starting in in. Verse 30, he just clocks in all the witnesses to prove Jesus is who he says he is. He says, John the Baptist was convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and makes it known. He says his own works, all his signs up until this point, proves he says who he is. And the works he's going to do will only further prove he is who he says he is. The Father in heaven, in the same way God reveals himself to humankind through messengers and prophets, works and signs, word and scripture, Jesus' deity is affirmed by those very same things. 
not only the prophets of old, but of John the Baptist. His works, his signs, and the scriptures themselves, which is where Jesus lands. He says, scripture itself, I'm not only the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but all scripture is actually about me. You know all that stuff Moses wrote? That's about me. You know all the stuff all the prophets wrote when you guys were in exile? That's about me. You know all the stuff the prophets were saying as we're rebuilding and as we're reading the law? That's about me. You've searched the scriptures and you've missed me entirely. And this is where Jesus camps out a little bit. He affirms their diligent study, although it might be a little backhanded, but he does affirm their diligent study of scripture. But in all that study, they've missed the point. And all that study, they should be the ones who are most sort of hyper aware of where this Messiah is, and they have missed it. The Pharisees regarded the scriptures with such esteem that they thought just by studying like the parchment and the letters of scripture, they had eternal life. In copying the scriptures, a scribe was not allowed to write more than one letter before looking back at the text. And that sort of eccentricity is wonderful for us because the transmission of scriptures was consequently really accurate for us. We can benefit from that, but it points to an underlying mistake in the focus of their faith. They really felt, as Jesus said, that in the scriptures themselves, they had life. One of the greatest rabbis, Hillel, talks about this in sort of a list of maxims that he had about life and faith. One of which was this, quote, More flesh, more worms. More wealth, more care. More maidservants, more lewdness. More men servants, more thieving. More women, more witchcraft. I don't really understand where he's going with that one. More Torah, more life. And another one, quote, Whoso hath gained a good name has gained it for himself. Whoso hath gained the words of the Torah hath gained for himself life in the world to come. In other words, they found life in the words of Scripture, which on the surface doesn't seem so bad, right? But the Jews believed this so firmly that some of them linked Scripture and memorization with salvation itself. They were the great Bible students of the day. And yet, in spite of their knowledge of scriptures, they rejected Jesus when he came. They were using the scriptures to find life and meaning and success and power and knowledge, and they were missing Jesus, the centerpiece of the story right in front of them. This is a lesson in how easily we are distracted by good things to miss God things. We can get lost in the the commas and the Hebrew and the cross-references and all the things, and we can miss Jesus right in front of us. And according to Jesus, the only way we can derive life from the Scriptures is to see Jesus in the Scriptures. Because all the Scriptures bear witness to him. The entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is ultimately about Jesus. The Bible, we know, is not an end to itself, but it's a, it's a window which we can learn marvelous truths and actually know Jesus. And Jesus says, Scripture apart from me is lifeless. You're missing it. And there's a moment after Jesus' resurrection 
in Luke chapter 24, word hadn't totally gotten out that Jesus had been raised, but certainly word had gotten out that this sort of itinerant Jewish rabbi who was causing a big ruckus in Jerusalem had been crucified. And as some disciples of Jesus are sort of talking about all the events that had happened in Jerusalem, in Luke chapter 24, they have this kind of conversation, and Jesus oh so gracefully inserts himself into the conversation. In Luke 24, starting at verse 13, Luke writes, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, all the things in Jerusalem about Jesus being crucified and all that. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yeah, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. One writer says, apparently knowing Jesus had resurrected could wait. Knowing Jesus was the center of scripture could not. Do you guys catch that? He doesn't say, boom, hey guys, I'm here. It worked. I'm back. He says, all right, let's start at the beginning. I'm going to show you how everything in here pointed to Jesus. The reason he revealed himself like this, it seems, is that he wanted to take them through the scriptures and show how Israel's entire story points to Jesus. To Jesus making sure his disciples then and now know that he is the center of scripture is vitally important. So we have to ask ourselves, like the Pharisees in the time of Jesus, where have we searched Scripture and missed Jesus? In the life of Jesus, we have a couple of examples of those people who should know better, but they miss Jesus in Scripture. And kind of two primary certainly people, but even archetypes of people. One that we're reading about here in John 5 are the Pharisees. They were missing the heart and the story of God. And in Jesus' time and place, first century Palestine, the Pharisees would be sort of the modern-day equivalent to sort of the the political fundamental right, both in, in religion and politics. They came from the, like, rural heartland of Galilee, right? And they were the ones really concerned with Scripture itself, And they were the ones that were missing the point. But Jesus doesn't just go after 
people on that side of the spectrum. In Matthew chapter 22, he talks with some Sadducees who might be more equivalent to like progressive Christianity. Those who might look at scripture, not necessarily as the word of God, but just great literature to be studied and evaluated and identified. And he says to them, you're wrong because you neither know scriptures nor God. You miss the scripture. To both sides of the camp who use scripture to justify whatever their thing is, to defend whatever their thing is, rather than sitting under it and seeing Jesus as the center of it, miss it according to Jesus. Both types of people use scripture to find life and meaning and success and power and critique and whatever, and they're missing Jesus. In so, they make scripture about themselves and their sort of pet project that they're excited about. Their contention that they just can't get over. Their version of an interpretation that everyone must hear about. And then scripture becomes about themselves and not Jesus. To the Pharisees, scripture was about them following all the rules, being in the know, being in the right. And they missed the whole thing. In his little book, Unbreakable, which is a book about scripture, Andrew Wilson kind of shares a story that I can so resonate. He is a pastor just like myself, and part of what I get to do as a pastor a lot is to officiate weddings, which is super fun. Super fun to be back in wedding season for real. I did a couple of COVID weddings, and they're like not the most ideal, um, but I'm very excited for, for wedding season for real to come back. And one of the, the fun things about being in the wedding is, you know, I got the husband and the, and the wife right here, and I'm the guy who gets to say, I proclaim you, husband, wife. It's, it's very fun. And then there's always a photographer roaming around. One of our best friends is a wedding photographer, and they're always roaming around, and they snap those pictures, like the first kiss picture. Maybe they're taking communion. Maybe they're exchanging vows. And here's the funny thing about this. I'm in all these pictures. I see on people's Instagram, I'll, like, go to their house, and, like, there's a beautiful picture of them at the altar or whatever, and there's me, like, in my suit, you know? Now, it would be the height of foolishness, ignorance, and arrogance to think that all those pictures and subsequently all those weddings were about me, right? It's about them. It's about them. It's about their family under God proclaiming in this beautiful day, but I'm in all those pictures, And in the same way, Scripture is very much like that. We're in here. We can find ourselves in here. We can find our story in God's story. But as soon as it becomes about us, as soon as we are the center of whatever it is, whether we are on one side of the spectrum or the other, trying to prove or disprove something, trying to fight something or contend with something, and we make it about us, we miss the point. And we're like the foolish wedding officiant who thinks all those wedding pictures are about them and not the couple. When we read the scriptures, Jesus is the centerpiece. He's the one the photographer was trying to capture. And it's the hard reality that the Bible is not about you, although we see ourselves in it. It's about Jesus. Now, this message of scripture being all about Jesus uncovers another issue here, both for us and for the people Jesus was talking to. Self-love and self-importance. Right, self-care, self-love is all the rage. Get a mani and a petty, right? Take care of yourself. Self-care, right? This is a huge deal to Jesus. The Jewish leaders tragically preferred receiving glory from one another, Instagram likes, comments, accolades, than seeking glory from God. 
No sin or idolatry is more insidious and destructive than living for the approval of other people. Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The response of the Jews towards the scripture in Jesus was symptomatic of a deeper problem, which Jesus confronted directly, and that was a love of self, a priority of self. For this reason, Jesus counters not only their inadequate knowledge of God, but their inadequate love. In verse 42, he says, the love of the Father is not in you. Not only have you missed the scriptures, you don't even have the love of God in you. Not only do you not have it all together up here, you do not have it all together here. Four times in this passage, Jesus describes himself as being sent by God, yet he was being rejected by those who claimed to love God. Their declaration of love does not square with their lives. Showing us you cannot love God if you refuse to submit to Jesus as God. Another way we can look at this moment of inadequate love is about inadequate worship. Because love and worship are friends. They hold hands. Worship is like how we train our loves. In his book, You Are What You Love, James K.A. Smith, Christian philosopher, says this, quote, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do, it's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. The whole of following Jesus is about retraining our hearts, curating our loves, redirecting our worship from ourselves, from all the other things, from that new car, that new house, from your spouse, your kids, back to Jesus. Rather than coming to condemn, Jesus came to manifest the love of God. And the truth is, while we loved ourselves, God loved us. And while we would sacrifice everything else for ourselves, God sacrificed himself for us. In the gospel of grace, we are liberated from the need to find approval from other people. And we are liberated from self-love as our primary motivation in life because Jesus, in Jesus, we have been approved by the only one whose approval matters and the only one whose approval satisfies. Jesus claims to be equal to God. He's from God. He's in sync with the Father. He and the Father are one. And truly believing that means rejecting Jesus in his way is rejecting God. It means that scripture and all of our religious activity apart from Jesus is lifeless. And it means that in him, we don't need to seek approval from others or elevate self-love as our primary motivation because we have been approved by the only one whose approval matters and the only one whose approval satisfies. Now, lest we fall into the same trap of the religious leaders of the day by knowing all the right things but never actually practicing them, we have to be honest in this moment and ask ourselves, where have we missed Jesus? Where do we need to go to God in repentance today? I love what Kev said earlier about eldership, that 
Uh, it's, you, you haven't arrived. It's like a journey. You won't get this done perfectly. And it's the same with our discipleship to Jesus. You're not gonna, you've not arrived already, Anthem Camarillo. And it's not a box you check. So today in this moment, whether it's a little thing or a big thing, where have we missed him? Where do we need to redirect our heart to repentance to God? Where do we need to allow the Holy Spirit to prompt and, and nudge and change us? How do we leave here altered because we've encountered Jesus in the text and not just the text? I think that's my prayer. I, it's kind of an open-ended way to, to end, but I think that's my prayer for, for you and for myself as we engage with this text today, is that we just simply be open to where we've missed Jesus and not chuck all our Bible study out the window, but to know that it is lifeless apart from him. To know that our approval in him is all that matters. And to know that because we have not rejected Jesus, we've actually been found in him, we've been found by Yahweh, by God, the creator of everything. We've been found in him. And that changes everything. And so I want to pray for you. I'm also going to pray for communion. You guys have your supplies, hopefully, already. I'll kind of open that up, and we're going to close with a song making much of Jesus.